You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's show. As regular listeners know, Stig and I like to press the limits of creative and unique ideas. And on today's show, we have an interview with art collector Scott Lynn. Scott has been an entrepreneur building new and innovative companies for over 20 years. And throughout that time, he always had a passion for collecting art. Then in 2018, Scott created a company called Masterworks, which is a platform that securitizes fine art by filing the ownership of various paintings with the SEC. So Scott was the first person to enable investors to collectively purchase and trade shares in multi-million dollar works of art by artists like Picasso, Monet, and Warhol, and many others. So get ready to hear a fascinating discussion with the creative Scott Lynn. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Preston Pish. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson. All right, guys, we are super excited to be here with Scott Len. And Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks, Dig. So, Scott, uh, we've covered many types of investments here on the Investors Podcast, but art is clearly a new frontier for all of our listeners. I personally know so little about this topic, and I find it quite fascinating. So talk to us about how you got started in this sector of investing. I am super pumped to hear how you respond to this. I think like many collectors, I, I first started collecting art really out of passion. But, you know, like many collectors, I've made a lot of mistakes along the way and then eventually learned that art could also be an investment. From our perspective, we see this asset class, which is really enormous. If you listen or read any of the statistics on art as an asset class, Deloitte estimates that there's $1.7 trillion in fine art in between ultra-high net worth collectors' homes. There's 50 to $60 billion a year that sells in terms of volume, 2 to 3% turnover. So it's this very interesting investment. But the problem with it, and we hear this all the time, is that the only way to participate is if you have a couple million dollars to buy a painting. So it's this really unique outperforming asset class that really nobody can afford unless you have a lot of money to acquire the art. We think it's a natural asset class to be securitized. You made such an interesting leap, right? You So you collected art, clearly very interested in art. You could say that about a lot of people. I would say you took it just that one step further. I guess you took it like a mile more than anyone else. Could you talk to us some about that thought process? You know, how did it become an idea and how did it turn into what it is today? You know, my background has really been in starting tech companies really at the same time with collecting art. My approach was really how to, how to productize this from a tech perspective to make it accessible to all types of people. So I think that's probably the unique perspective. You know, most people in the art community are not tech people and most tech guys I know are not art people. So that's maybe the unique perspective that we bring. Very high level, some of the correlation studies that have been done and one that we like to cite a lot is the Citibank study from 2015 where the CIO at Citibank, private bank, concluded that individuals should allocate between 1.4 and 4% to art depending on what percentage of their portfolio they hold in illiquid. And I think a lot of that conclusion is really just based on two factors. One is that the asset class overall, just the fine art market overall, independent of the blue chip segment, has outperformed the S&P for the past 20 years by 180%. The second thing that I think is important is that it's really an uncorrelated asset class. 
So if you look at the dot-com bubble bursting in 2000, the art market actually increased over that period. The highest correlation to a financial crisis the art market has had was actually in 2008-2009 when the market fell, or I think the S&P fell 58%. The art market declined 26%, so that had roughly a correlation factor of 0.5%. But in general, the asset class is uncorrelated to almost all other asset classes, which we find very interesting when when taken in context of its outperformance as well. And why do you think that is the case? Typically, whenever we talk about cycles and economic markets, you would say that some goods you would need regardless of the economy. Fine art seems to be an asset class you definitely don't need, not including you perhaps, God. But that seems like an asset class you don't need whenever you need money and the economy is bad. Yeah, I think there's lots of art history majors running around that might disagree with you on that, but (laughs) in general, I would agree with you. We don't actually know what drives art prices, and there's lots of academic or theoretical conversations we could get into on this, but the one hypothesis that we have is that art prices are correlated to ultra, ultra wealth creation around the globe. Whether you talk about that in terms of growing inequality or however you want to characterize that, it does seem like that's what it's probably most closely correlated to. We have a, an ongoing research project right now. We're, we're trying to prove that, but we haven't yet concluded it. It is a global market. So I think the latest stats on the industry show that 40% of the art market is in the U.S., 20% in the U.K., 20% is in China. The rest is primarily Western Europe. So it's this global market of people with multi-million dollar art collections that are effectively trading one, two, ten, fifty million dollar paintings between each other that, that really drives the market. The easy way to think about the art market is probably to think about it in two different components. One is the primary market, and I would think of just the primary market as being paintings that have never been sold before. So these are usually living artists represented by galleries. That's really a different segment of the market than what Masterworks focuses on, which is the secondary market, which are paintings that have been sold multiple times, and they're usually by artists that are no longer living. We tend to think about the market in those two ways. And then within the secondary market, there's what we refer to as this blue chip segment, which is roughly 60% in terms of dollar value of the art market overall. And this blue chip segment tends to be from household brand name artists, artists like Picasso, Monet, Warhol, Basquiat, et cetera, usually names that you've heard of. That primarily is Masterworks focus, but that's a very high level way to think about the market. Scott, talk to us more about this blue chip art that you speak of. When we refer to the term blue chip, and this is a term that a company called Art Price has really created, we're just referring to the top 100 artists by sales volume. These are the top selling artists. They tend to be, from our perspective, the most interesting risk-adjusted returns in the art market, meaning that the volatility, if you invest in a blue chip painting, is relatively low. Very, very unlikely that your investment would ever go to zero, but they provide relatively steady returns. These are paintings that can return 8, 9, 10, 12, 15% a year, somewhat predictably, without taking a lot of risk. So to us, that's the segment of the market that can be most institutionalized and is the most interesting. So very high level, we talked about ultra wealth creation on a global basis that's happening in countries outside of the U.S. as well as in the U.S. Independent of that, there's this very interesting dynamic in the art market that's almost unlike any other asset class where you have a continual decline in terms of supply on an artist by artist basis. So one of the things that you see in the art market is if you take an artist, take a well-known artist like Jackson Pollock, for example. Pollock, in his lifetime, created hundreds of drip paintings that he's well-known for, but there's only 20-something of those drip paintings that are left in private collections today. And the reason that supply has declined is because after collectors have died or after they decide to pass on their collection to museums, the number of artwork available 
in private collections just continues to decrease. So although Jackson Pollock is a well-known brand and a well-known artist, the number of paintings that are available for purchase continues to decline every year. So in part, I think that continuously declining amount of supply is what does drive prices up as well. So I would think about segments of the art market as being broken into old masters, modern impressionism, post-war, contemporary is kind of the primary segment. We did this research piece in our research center on masterworks where uh, we looked at returns by segment of the market and then we looked at volatility to effectively create a sharp ratio. And it's interesting what you find when you look at those different segments. One of the things that surprises people most often is that if you, just very generally speaking, were to purchase a Rembrandt today, a very well-known Dutch artist, it would be unlikely that you would actually make money on that painting if you held it 10 or 20 years. And part of that is because in the art market, we see taste change over time. And right now, most of the people that are net new buyers are interested in buying contemporary post-war paintings, some modern impressionism paintings, but they're not really interested in buying old masters. We're just not really seeing any appreciation in that segment of the market. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, 
How investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. You mentioned it yourself. Your preferences change. How do you predict that? I guess as an art buyer, you need to know what the change in preferences are before people know it. Yeah, I think that's right. And we, you know, as a buyer, I guess as an asset manager, look at those trends, right? We look at the trends in appreciation rates, artists that are sort of moving into this blue chip segment. And we look at trends in depreciation rates or artists that are moving out of this blue chip segment to try to predict that. You know, the good and the bad news about the art market is that nothing ever happens fast. Now, unlike the technology industry that I'm used to, you know, you can see changes overnight or changes within a number of months. We don't really see that in the art market. All of these trends occur on a compounding basis over a number of years. Those are the trends that we watch to try to figure out how different artist markets are changing or, or how the market overall is changing. Primarily, liquidity comes from us selling the painting to another private collector, right? That's the number one thing that drives liquidity. We work with investors to help them sell their shares at times if they need to get out of the investments. But people generally should think of this as a seven-year investment. It's an illiquid investment that they allocate single-digit percentage of their portfolio to and don't really expect to have access to that until the end of the life of the investment. Maybe let's walk through the flow of funds and how we think about acquiring a painting and then ultimately liquidity. So we'll go out, we'll acquire a painting with $10 million of our own balance sheet capital. We will then file that painting with the SEC to go public. And the going public process is very similar to how you would think about taking a company public. It's effectively an S1 equivalent. Once the painting is public, we then sell shares in the painting. At any time after that, a collector can come and make an offer to buy a painting. And then if the painting sells, the proceeds are distributed to those shareholders or investors. So the art market, a lot of people don't realize this, but the art market is very similar to the real estate market in that a huge portion of art sells through public auction. There's millions, most likely, of public comps that have been tracked over the years within the art market. I think, uh, in fact, one of the things that we tend to focus on are paintings that have sold two or more times at public auctions, so we can understand appreciation rate or depreciation rate for particular objects. And there's been 60,000 times the paintings have sold two or more times at auctions. So there's this really huge, deep data set in the art market that helps us understand trends and value for a particular artist or a particular period. So when we're looking at acquiring a painting, we're looking at historical comparable paintings that have sold by the same artist of the same style that are roughly the same example to try to understand how have paintings similar to ours appreciated collectively and how do we think our painting is appreciating historically to try to predict future appreciation rates. Scott, talk to us about risk. Here on the show, we always talk about protecting your downside risk first. And then if you purchase an undervalued asset, the upside will just take care of itself. So as we consider the downside, what causes an art market to crash? People have been collecting art for thousands of years. The biggest crash in most recent history was the early 1990s with the Japanese sell-off. That was the most significant crash. But, you know, recently, other than the financial crisis, we haven't really seen any significant downward movement in art prices. Now, it's what we do see, and I think is what is much more common, is we see specific artists' markets decline rapidly. For example, one artist that we've really seen decline just from a, um, a market perspective is Damien Hirst. Damien's paintings, for various reasons or, or sculpture or whatever, have really declined in value over the past 10 plus years. So I think we do see it on a particular artist basis. But other artists, you know, conversely, like based on all the data we have now, with Monet in particular, we see a very low likelihood that his paintings decline in value. When we look at all of the uh, paintings that we have by Monet that have sold two or more times, we only see a 3% chance that Monet 
has ever declined in value based on the second sale. That's a very interesting data point to us. And I think within this blue chip segment overall, we, we really view art as a very, very, very good store of value. So if art is declining in value, it's declining 10%, maybe it's declining 20%, but 50% declines or 100% declines are just very, very uncommon. We think a portfolio of art makes sense, just like a portfolio in, in most asset classes makes sense. And it is interesting. I mean, when, when we look at the blue chip segment, we don't see a huge standard deviation in terms of returns by artists. So we might see you know, a range of returns somewhere between kind of 8% and 15%. That's large, but it's not like we're seeing 1% to 40%. So there is a reasonably narrow band within this blue chip segment of returns. And you know, we, I guess we tend to focus on that. Could you please tell us a story, a personal story, where you've been wrong and where you've been right about art valuation and what you learned? I'm sure you have quite a few. I have quite a few. So uh, I think one of the things that new collectors often get wrong, and I've seen this many, many times over, and this definitely describes myself, is new collectors tend to focus on the artists themselves and not the examples by that artist. So if you take an artist like Picasso, Picasso created over 50,000 objects in his lifetime. And when I was first collecting, one of the things I did is I went out and I bought this whole lot of uh, Picasso ceramics from one of his neighbors in France. And I think I, I can't even remember the number. I think I acquired like something like 100 ceramics by Picasso. And you know, they were in all these crates, packed with straw, and I remember receiving them. I didn't even know what to do with them. But I was thinking that long term, this, this would be a great investment. And the problem with that approach really is that if you look at Picasso ceramics, they're addition, right? They're made in these massive additions. You know, he was maybe involved with it, but wasn't intimately involved with the creation of those ceramics. So they have his name on them, but they're not really that unique, not that special. Collectors of Picasso would certainly not aspire to one day own a Picasso ceramic. And I think that was a, a good lesson on, you know, having all these objects by a very brand name artist, but not having any particular object be necessarily that good. And therefore, those objects not really appreciating that much in the future. I think if you look at the value of Picasso ceramics today, they're probably very similar to what they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. They haven't really changed that much. All right. So, Scott, let's also give you an opportunity to talk about one of your really good purchases. Yeah, for better or for worse, I've had lots of those stories. I had a um, 76, 77 de Kooning, which Willem de Kooning is one of the more important American artist, woman one at the moment is arguably the most important painting in, in American history. And I, I acquired this painting from Christie's a number of years ago. So I think that painting, and I don't, I'll get these numbers specifically wrong, so don't quote me on these, but I think I acquired that painting for, I want to say seven or $8 million and then came close to doubling the value on that in about two years, sold it shortly thereafter. There were just a whole bunch of reasons that that was the right time to acquire that painting and then the uh, the right time to sell it. There are opportunities like that that exist in the art market. I mean, we don't certainly guide investors to think about those types of returns with, with our products, but they do exist from time to time. What is a good return? I know you talked before about risk-adjusted returns, and we talked about that you know the asset class is different than what we usually talk about. Keep in mind the types of risk we incur. What is a good return in the art market right now? I think it depends on what segment of the market you're talking about. So for example, if, if we go back to, to my earlier comments about the primary market versus the secondary market, there's a lot of people that just invest in the primary market for new artists, living artists that are looking for 30, 40, 50, 100% plus returns. And that's a very speculative game. But a lot of those artists also have a high probability of going to zero as well. But to us, this is just a very interesting risk-adjusted asset class where you can theoretically outperform the market without taking much risk or at least less risk than how we view developed equities. 
You know, the art market is funny and a little bit hard to predict, but it's always collectors who are purchasing these paintings. A collector usually has a very specific collection that they're focused on building out. So, for example, personally, I have this very specific collection of post-war artists from 1946 through the early 1960s. And, you know, I'm always looking for one or two artists to kind of round out that collection or complement it because my focus is really on building that collection. So, Scott, I'm assuming most people listening to this are like me and have a very limited understanding of art investing. So what would you recommend for them to become better informed about the methodology? It's a good question. I mean, I I will point you back to Masterworks.io to our resource center. We've assembled for investors one of the most comprehensive resource centers of all third-party resources as well as internal research that we've published. And it really helps, I think, people think about the art market holistically and from a very high level before deciding to purchase a painting or to begin collecting. That's where I would start. And then there's, there's a whole host of other websites like Artnet or ArtPrice that allow you to research specific artists or comparables by different artists, look at historical auction records, and really dive into the data. The advice that I would give myself and the advice that I give all new collectors is focus on the example, not the artist. Because usually if you look at the data, that one particular object that's an A object for that particular artist will always appreciate much faster than the third tier object by the brand name artist. That's the one piece of advice that I would stick to. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? 
Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. It's so overwhelming with everything whenever you enter a new asset class. You know, you don't know what to start. You don't know what to stop. You don't know who to trust and who not. How do you filter out all the noise? If you can outline perhaps some of the first few steps you would take as an ambassador. It's a really great question. To step back from that question a little bit and talk about kind of the evolution of how the art market has got to where it is today. You know, if you go back to the art market in the U.S. in the 50s and the 60s, a lot of the decisions around what is great art were controlled by critics. People like the last name of Rosenberg, Clement Greenberg, etc. And they were really the tastemakers in the art world. Today, that critic culture has died out to a great extent and has really been replaced by galleries or dealers who decide what is good art, but they also have a financially vested interest in making that determination. So it definitely is a messy and difficult to understand industry for someone entering the art market today. My best advice on navigating that, unfortunately, is probably just to work with people you know, work with trusted art advisors rely on maybe the auction houses more so than specific dealers. If you don't have comfort with the dealer, auction houses tend to be a bit more transparent in their approach. It is a difficult industry to navigate if you know nothing about it. There's this concept in traditional industries where if you are giving advice to someone to purchase something, then you are effectively a fiduciary. You have an obligation to inform your client how much money you're making, for example. That dynamic does not exist in practice in the art industry, whether or not a lot of dealers do have a fiduciary obligation, I think is maybe somewhat debatable. But in practice, dealers don't really subscribe to that concept. And I do think it's very important that people be very aware that those that are recommending purchases or those that that may have a financial interest in transaction will probably not disclose it. You know, it is sort of a buyer beware dynamic. And I think anyone new approaching the industry should be careful with that. So, Scott, one of the things I found really interesting is in the Citibank report you reference. there's a huge spike in the Chinese market when it comes to art. Why, why do you think that we're seeing this now, and how does that change anything? Yeah, I mean, China has been a huge net contributor to the art market overall, and we think it is a, a permanent change in the art market. You know, you've seen most large galleries in New York open up in Hong Kong. There's a huge, huge Chinese collector base that's just coming rapidly into the market. We don't see that slowing down anytime soon. You know, we have seen historically in the art market, other countries kind of come in and move out, like Russia, for example, used to be a large overall percentage of the art market. 
most of the money in Russia that's been collecting sort of these very expensive paintings is no longer doing that. So we have seen that trend, but we, we definitely don't expect to see the Chinese market decline anytime soon. I mean, there's just so many new billionaires being created in China every day. And a lot of those people are very interested in art and contemporary art scene in particular. We don't really see that trend changing anytime soon. Scott, thank you so much for accepting our offer to come on the show. This was such a fascinating topic that is just completely out of anything that Stig and I have covered in the past. So uh, if anybody out there listening to this wants to learn more about you and your company, uh, where can they look? The best place is just our website, which is www.masterworks.io. And then, as I mentioned before, there's a great resources center on the website that has lots of third-party content as well as just content that we've created and, and researched on Artisan Asset Class. And you can also sign up and invest directly on the website as well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much for your time to come here on the Amastas podcast and talk to our listeners about collecting art. Really appreciate it and hope to, uh, hope to be back soon. All right, guys, that was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of The Ambassador's Podcast. We see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.